Welcome, welcome, welcome. You are listening to Building the Black Educator Pipeline Podcast, the place where we talk to real people in the real struggle doing the real work. And I am your host, Shana Terrell, educator, activist, dedicated to the lifelong struggle of freedom and liberation for my people. Today, I am super, super excited to invite our guest to have our guest, Mr. Ernest Krem III. He is a former award-winning high school educator of 12 years, a history teacher. Um, He is a public teacher, and I want y'all to catch that. Not a public speaker, y'all. He is a public teacher and content creator. He's also the CEO of his own Krem's Consulting LLC and also an author. Just want to shout out some of his accolades. This brother has been on CNN, The Washington Post, ABC, CBS, NBC, a number of outlets preaching and teaching. So we are excited to have him here as a guest today. Welcome, Mr. Krim. Hey, what's up, Shana? Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> yes, it's a pleasure to have you. And I know you probably most people like, oh, why you don't call him Ernest? Like you are a teacher, so I'm used to the Mr. Krim. So I'm going to be calling you Mr. Krim throughout our whole conversation. All good. That's exactly why my social media handles are remain consistent with that. (laughs) (laughs) A teacher like, oh, Mr. Krim. That's what I'm going to call him. Not calling this brother Ernest, (laughs) Mr. Krim. But thank you for joining us today. So we always start out with asking our guests to just tell us a little bit about yourself, your work, past and present. Like, who is Ernest Krim III? Like, what should we know about you? Yeah, I am a, uh, I would say a lifelong student and educator. And I think to be an effective educator, you have to be a student actually more than you are an educator. I'm someone who always wonders about how things work, specifically as it relates to our community. And I'm always trying to find solutions, always trying to uncover stories. I'm always trying to uncover ways for us to effectively build moving forward. So just like you said, I'm a public teacher in a sense that I believe that this information shouldn't be restricted to people who can get that teaching degree or restricted to people who are going through the K through 12 system. Our education, how, how we come from historically, is not just something that existed within the four walls. We were teaching on the street. We're teaching under trees. We're yes. teaching the kids wherever they are, any place. And I'm just a product of a nurturing environment, of a nurturing family from Melody and Ernest, um, from a long legacy of people who, of course, were, were built great civilizations in Africa, were forced here, uh, survived the, the Jim Crow South. And decided to come to the Chicago areas to, to find a better life. And here I am now trying to pay it back. I love that. I love that. Especially the student part. Listen, got to be a student if you want to be a teacher. Talk to us about how you actually became an educator. Like what interests you in education? As you know, Black men are a rarity in education, right? I think it was up to 2%. I think we down to like 1.85% Black male educators. So talk to us about how you got into education. It was an accident. I, I definitely did not plan to become a teacher. I, I can't recall one of my boys growing up saying they wanted to grow up and be a teacher. It just wasn't a thing. Like you, that's not something you talk about. You always, for one, it's going to be athlete. You know, it might be like a rapper, it might be an actor, something where you known. And really it's about making a bunch of money. So that just wasn't in my view. My mom was an educator, but even still, that wasn't something I saw myself doing. I saw the work she was doing. I was involved in it. She would take me to meetings and things like that. And I would see her, you know, take her uh, students with us to church and, you know, do a fundraiser to take them to Washington, D.C. when they were in eighth grade. And I would see all these different things. But in my mind, it was just about, you know, helping people. Yeah. So but what happened was my first year in uh, college, I almost flunked out. 
I was uh, majoring in psychology and it kind of speaks to the importance of us having a why or having a purpose for the work we do, because I was just taking the classes. I just chose it. I didn't really care that much about it, you know? Um, so after that first semester, of course, my grades reflected it and I almost, you know, flunked out on academic probation. I decided that I wanted to then take a black history course because um, I began to realize that I was immersed in our culture, my entire upbringing, even though I never had a chance to sit down and take a course. We had black history posters all throughout my house. You know, we had this uh, series that Budweiser actually created called The Great Kings and Queens of Africa. And that series started in the 80s. And we had these posters all throughout our house coming from the, the bottom the stairs all the way up and they were just stapled on the wall. So I would walk past our greatness every day. You know, and my, my mom had, you know, some of the same, if, if you're watching this telecast visually, you can kind of see some of the stuff I have on my uh, bookshelf are the same things my mom had in our house, African art. She had, you know, books about Malcolm X and Dr. King and things like that. So I was all up in it. So when I had the opportunity to take the course, it was like, well, let me take this in a structured environment. Let me learn about our history from a professor who studied it. And I absolutely immediately fell in love with the course. It began to me like I had so many questions growing up about my upbringing, why my neighborhood looked a certain way. And I was somebody who was bused to a white neighborhood for eight years um, for school, for elementary. So I saw the differences. I saw how we were treated versus them. I saw the police, you know, monitoring our neighborhood every day, you know, versus the police were friendly to, to, to my friends on this side of town. I saw the options. You can have junk food. You can have healthy food versus all we got is junk food. There's no other option. I saw the fact that they could go to their park district and walk in distance and they could play peewee football and they could do this programming. Whereas where we at, we playing tackle on the concrete because ain't no programs for us. So like when I took that course, it was like, oh, that's why. Because you, when you grow up in this system without a comprehensive like worldview of who you are, you begin to internalize it, and you think, oh, it's my fault. We we must not be working hard enough. That's where a lot of this pull yourself up rhetoric comes from. We must not be working hard enough. No, we work harder than anybody. <laughs> it's the the system ain't for us. So that was the spark right there. That was my freshman year, second semester. Uh, 2006. And I have not looked back. I have studied this. I, I've decided to major in history so I could go into class and teach. I minored in our history, which is really it was really the major, though, because I took every course I could in ours that were cross reference as, a, you know, the mainstream U.S. history course and all of that. Um, so that's almost that's 18 years ago. That, to me, is the thing we need to uncover and unlock our potential. And I decided to teach so I could reach our kids before they uh, went into the so-called real world and not be aware of what we were engaged in, involved with. Absolutely. But where did that come from? Right. So I love, right. You got into it, exposed to history. and But to say, I'm going to go back and I'm going to teach children. Like what hooked yeah. that? You know, it, there's a part of us that I think like, as you get older, especially when you hit these milestones, like 16, 18, 21, society tells us that we have to act our age, right? You're 16, I got my license now, a little more responsible. You know, I can't go to the rated R movies, but I can still drive there. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know, you know it's, like, it's like 18, you get a little bit more than it's 21. It's like, oh, now it's like, I'm supposed to magically feel like an adult. And yes. as, I, as I got older, I remember thinking like, I don't feel like I'm, I'm more, of course, I'm a little more mature but I still like cartoons and stuff. You know what I'm saying? Like, I still want to sit around, play video games. I want to 
play. I want to play basketball all day. Like, and there's a part of us that sometimes is crushed as we get older and we matriculate to the so-called real world. And I always wanted to keep that side of me alive that just love having fun and connecting. And like I, I had I like when I was like 15, I got my I had my, my first cousins on my mom's side when I was 15. Right. First cousins. And like seeing them, I'm 15 years older. I'm a role model to them. And then a few years later, have another cousin. So it's like I understood that if I did not have my parents intercede when I was younger in that time frame, then I wouldn't have made the right decisions. I saw what it looked like to make the wrong decisions in my neighborhood. And I know that it could sometimes be a parent at home, but for a lot of our kids, the parents are busy. We're in a capitalist society. We're working a lot. I could, on my, in my, my from my perspective, be that uh, parent at school to help provide what the parents might not be able to help them with. And I think subconsciously, you know, having a mom who taught for 30 some years and was a principal in the community and did so much outside the class, that was being downloaded in me too. I didn't realize it at the time, but it was like, I want a mentor. I want to help get kids to this point. And how can I do it? I got to be in the school because yep. like where else are kids forced to go? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Every day by law, like I could start a program, but I need to be in the school first to even see what it's like. So I chose history then, too, because to me, that's the best way to mentor our kids. Well, that was my other interconnection. Like I tell people all the time, one of the most important jobs in this world is being a teacher because you control the minds of the future. Right. Like that is the connection there. So I'm like, hmm, history, right? right. Why history though? Yeah. Like what's so important and why is it so important for young people to get grounded in history, their history? All it takes is for one, history is the only course, maybe English too. I give them a close second, but that's the only course where we could talk about everything in the world and then not be viewed as you overstepping your boundaries and being political or whatever. We can help nurture the way kids think about the world. We're we're honestly controlling the lens we have, right? You think about how we're typically brought up in this society. We 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 all know these common myths. Columbus discovered America. He sailed the ocean blue fourteen ninety two, right? Mm-hmm. We, we know these common myths. The George Washington story. The I think he was a cherry tree guy. I don't remember, but like Benjamin Franklin, <laughs> like Benjamin Franklin discovered electricity. Something that's been here, right? Like all of these common myths, right? We we don't our history doesn't start until we are forced here, right? Uh, Abraham Lincoln saved the day after Harriet Tubman ran away. Um, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't trying to spit, but that's just what happened. It was coming, though. It was flowing, though. It was with it. Yes. You know? And then Fre- Frederick Douglass gave some nice speeches, but ultimately it was it was, it was was uh, Abraham Lincoln that freed us all, right? And then, you know, 100 years later, Dr. King said, da-da-da-da, and Malcolm X was the bad guy, though, right? So, so like, I, I think what happened happens is when mm. I step into that, that college classroom, the first time I heard a counter narrative was there outside of my household, of course. But you look at it's your parents. You'd be kind of like when I, I they, they always going to say that when you hear it again somewhere else, you're like, oh, they might be for real. So yes. when, so when the whole course is about me, my people, and I'm learning that I've been lied to my whole life, I'm like, yo, I can't let y'all be lied to, too, because at my core, I'm a servant. I'm a helper. When I go back to how I was as a child, I was always a person that did not uh, join in when my friends was bullying people. I was a person that would befriend people who were being made fun of. I was a person who stood up 
uh, had a tenacious spirit to fight. So I, I think that's like that's what we do is we have to find that childhood version of ourselves and transfer to what adulthood looks like. And I know for us, we're fighting a rising tide. And I used to think that I didn't have a role because I thought so many people were already doing doing enough until I realized that that's not true. Like when I speak to a child, I can sometimes only need five minutes to open up their mind of something they've never been exposed to before. I do a mentoring program at my former school and I was there last week. I walked in a little bit early before they started. And um, the, the, the facilitator who was there previously was asking everybody to name their favorite his, black historical figures. Mm-hmm. And, and one by one, everybody was going around. Of course, there, you know, Dr. King, Rosa Parks, Dr. King, Harry Tubman. You had a few that were saying some outliers, but it was the same typical story. So I yep. got up before I was going to present. I just I had just five minutes with them before they left before the next group came in. I said, why do you think that those are the same four or five people that we all say, no matter where you went to school? And then I I started giving them this expansive approach of like our history, hundreds of thousands of years of culture and art. But we only talk about not even the last 500, sometimes it's the last four, three, two, 50 years. That's when we begin our view. So I said, how does that shape how you view about yourself? Why do we focus on this small percentage when we are we are the ones who were here first, who created these civilizations? So, like, I, I just want to expand the black imagination. History to me is the word. But like having kids now, I understand that I'm every time I give a new fact, I'm feeding your imagination. That's why I'm very conscious of the information I share. When I first started, I remember chasing views and it's like, man. Every time I do say something positive, I might get this many views. But if I talk about the lynching of this without any type of substance to it, it goes viral. And I had to be careful of that because it's like, but what am I if I'm just feeding that to you without any lesson or if that's the only thing I'm feeding? How am I shaping how you imagine yourself, the imagination, the image nation? So it's like I got to keep I got to give you information that's going to help you remember who you were before you came into this realm, which is going to help you strategize who we need to be moving forward, even when you're not here. And that's that's interesting because social media can be a tricky place, a very tricky place for clickbait, likes, and all that other stuff. We know that a lot of times social media fuels emotion, right? And when you're targeting young people, right? People are purposely going after young people, targeting their minds, targeting their self-esteem, targeting their worldview, shaping how they think. How are you able to, na- I mean, you've been able to navigate that and be very successful. You have like, what, like 4 million followers? Oh, uh, well, my, my content reaches that many, um, but I have, TikTok is 400,000 followers. Um, IG is 200,000, but the content reaches about that many across all platforms. Because yep. folks are sharing. and Yeah, right. People who don't follow you are tuning in and stuff like that. Yep. So how do you think you're able to navigate? Like, because I mean, it's all positive and it's all truth. Yeah. And again, most people, you know, the kind of stuff they posting for likes and shares and to go viral, right? Especially to young people, but it seems like young people are really attracted to your content and consuming it. Yeah, it's it's hard, honestly. Well, I don't let me backtrack. It's hard for me to figure out how, honestly, because because that's not what I because I, I got the people got to understand. So I started creating content in 2016. Um, I dealt with a hate crime, which was recorded. And that was my first piece of content to get justice. After that, I started creating content. I started talking about what Kaepernick was doing. I was talking about Freddie Gray. It was my it was a way for me to uh, just be able to express myself without the restraints of 
having to worry about censorship or not having enough time in the class and all of that. So that's 2016. I didn't create tic- my first TikTok until 2021. I didn't have a huge following. Um, I probably had a few thousand on Instagram. I probably have 4,000 on Facebook. That's where I primarily posted things. So I didn't think that things would catch on like that, but I knew that the people who would watch my videos of the few hundred consistently, they liked it. They saw something in it. So that means to me that there are other people that can connect. So when I created my first TikTok and it got 10,000, I was like, yo, I'm on to something. So instead of me making these long five minute videos, I can make one and get my point across. Because as an educator, you have to be able to like take complex methods and systems of thought and then be able to communicate it to a three year old if necessary. So I just decided I'm going to I'm going to talk on these TikToks, how I talk in class, how I talk to my friends. Right. When I like, you know how it is. Like I was, I was one of like three black male teachers. So you, you do a little cold switching in the halls and the meetings and stuff like that. You're just trying to get to your safe place, which was the classroom with the kids. When I would shut that door, it was all about the kids, and I would talk to them how they spoke. But then I would translate it to like, this is how you know. I would say, though, Ida B. Wells, man, she was a G, you know. And, and but but then I would also talk about like, what does that mean if you were writing it down for an essay or something like that? So. That's kind of how we're connected. And I think what I've been told is, again, just the ability to reduce it and break it down hits people a lot. And um, all, we also have to understand that attention spans. Right. So I try to sh- uh, switch scenes often as if I can. If I'm doing a green screen, I might say a sentence, switch it up here, switch it up here. Keep people guessing. And also with this, you, you got to understand the element of it has to be one extreme or the other. Something as extremely shocking, positive or extremely shocking negative, but I'm a teacher at heart. So a lot of my stuff still is going to fall in that middle that you need to understand. And it's about that persistence. Again, creating content since 2016, my mm-hmm. stuff didn't pop off until 2021, 2022, and so on and so forth. I love that. So as you know, this is Black History Month, right? This is our month, our month to celebrate us, our month to celebrate who we are and all things. So because this is a platform for educators, I love to ask people in the classroom, how do you go about connecting youth to Black history and help them understand the importance of our history? So when I was a teacher, I always wanted our kids to know that it's a year long thing, first and foremost. So what that meant for me was when I was teaching you, I taught U.S. history every single year of my teaching career. That's the only subject I taught every year. I didn't get a chance to teach African studies until my last three because it was an elective. You have to get kids to sign up. Right. But what I did when I taught U.S. history is, for one, I started in Africa. I started in America or Turtle Island (laughs) before it was, you know, renamed. I started with Europe and Asia. And I talked about what these civilizations were like before you know, the so-called Colombian exchange and the genocide and everything. My idea was every period in time in history that I talk about in U.S. history, I got to find out what black people were doing or I got to teach them. Right. Because, again, we were here way before the depigmentation and all that type of stuff. So why wouldn't we be around in 1776? And then I taught at a school that was really was majority Hispanic, then black. So the questions would arise of what were we doing? So that made me even more versatile because now I'm saying, well, what were you doing? Because up until that point, my mind is, oh, you're Hispanic, you're Mexican. Oh, no, you have a lot of indigenous ancestry. So we talk about the Aztecs and Mayans. You're, you're, like, you're, you're truly understanding that we all learned this history primarily 
from a European perspective. From a European perspective, right. absolutely. So, so we're talking Black History from August all the way through May. <laughs> Black History it. Month was really, my kids, that's just the assembly, y'all. That's when we just going to show the rest of the school what we've been talking about. Yes. <laughs> so that, yes. that's pretty much what that is, yeah. I love that. And what I appreciate the fact, I always wonder, right, when folks are U.S. history teachers, how are you teaching the history? Are you teaching it from the European perspective? Especially if you're in a school full of black kids, right? Like, yeah. are you teaching it from a European perspective? Are you helping black children understand what was happening at that time, that they were more than slaves, right? Are you actually telling them the truth about white people <laughs> and the, the barbaric nature in this country? I always wonder that. So appreciate the fact that you like, oh, I told U.S. history, but I told the truth. And, you know. it, and, it, and it takes an effort. I'll be completely honest, because when I first started teaching it, you know, you get thrown into a district. You're like, you know, you don't get a summer training. You go to a couple orientations and then you come back with to the meetings with everybody else. And they yep. throw you the content and you're like, well, where do I start? You know, mm-hmm. so my first couple of years looking at the content that I was given, a lot, some of the stuff I was teaching wasn't 100 percent from the angle it should have been. You learn over time that, wait, why are we? manifest destiny but we why you know like it's some some of the stuff like you you, they want it here's what they say right they say teach it from a neutral perspective Mm. it's impossible i think that's crazy like why would i and why should i have to you want to ask me as a black man (laughs) to teach history from a neutral perspective i think that's so wild because what's neutral after the genocide happened okay look we don't we don't we don't want to have to choose a side you know there there was a uh (laughs) the the indigenous like how how do i teach slavery from from a new like I, i i knew i was in the wrong space when i would hear in meetings administrators talking about you know recommended prompts for debates right we would have like debates in class sometimes and, and the recommended prompt would be you know for example you might be able to say you know uh, what was the, the cause of the civil war was it this or was it states rights was it like where am i in the twilight zone right now that's not we're not debating that like it is it's not what, a debate it is, it is what it is. is so so we over here debating between like right wing and left wing talking points i mean and, and so you like educators who even go into and not just history i think i have the most explicit way to dissect this but english educators if i didn't teach history it would have been that why are y'all still only teaching about these old white dudes as if they're mm. the only purveyors of like we the ones who made English like we 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 flipped English and made it a cold like like it's still a crazy <laughs> stupid language but we we made, we made it slightly fashionable like y'all done had English all these years we jump in and made a whole genre of music <laughs> yeah whole genre of music got our own vernacular like you know in a whole different language language right? yeah so, so why isn't it why 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 isn't it Shakespeare and Tupac or, or, or Shakespeare and Phyllis <laughs> Wheatley? You know what I'm saying? Like Shakespeare yeah. and Jupiter and Jupiter Hammond. And, 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 and why is it just Langston Hughes in February? Because to me, I, I mean, Tupac colder than Shakespeare to me. But you know what I'm saying? Like Shakespeare got some cold stuff too. I mess with him. But he ain't the god of this. <laughs> I love this. I love this. I love this. I love this. And I, all my educators watching, like just challenging that mindset of people. Why do you? Yeah. You know, stick to the curriculum. Why is Shakespeare a guy in the classroom? Because somebody told you that this is what you should be teaching? That's what it starts with. Because science, all of that. Like, why Why am I teaching this this way? But I think, I wonder if people question that, right? I wonder if people question it. And it, 
Ooh, that just opens up a ton of can of worms when you say it like that, right? Like, why am I teaching it this way? You go back to teacher training, right? So it goes all the way back to how you were trained in whatever college you came from or whatever alternative program you came from. How are they coaching you to teach curriculum? Then it comes into decision making, right? What decision making power do you have over the curriculum in your school? What influence do you have? And how much are you pushing to fight to teach something different. And I remember when I first got into schools, right? And they were talking, you know how they talk about the structure of the curriculum, right? Like in sixth grade, they, they're going to learn this, this, and this. Seventh grade, they're going to learn this, this, and this. And I remember asking one time to the curriculum person, the white man, like, why well, are they not going to learn about Egypt and African civilization? Like, I just think it's weird that we just in the all black neighborhood and that's exactly. just not like, what they're going to learn. And he was uh, like, oh, well, generally, you know, just across, this is this is the standard for like what they learn. The standard for reproducing whiteness. <laughs> the standard. Yes. We in yes. the hood. I went to a, look, I went to a black high school. We in the hood. And we started world history with the people who look like my teacher. We started with Greece and Rome. Like, oh, and the only time we talk about Egypt is King Tut. That's the mm-hmm. only time. So, like, we even have to be careful just because our kids are going to a predominantly black school does not mean that they're being immersed in black culture. culture. Yes. You know? and, and what I'm finding now, which is odd because my son goes to a private school, because there's such a push for inclusion, at times they have more black centered curriculum <laughs> because they want to make sure that the black people in their school feel inclusive. So they have some more black centered curriculum and electives. Then the regular local public school up the street does, which is, again, just wild to me. Wild to me how this is happening. We got to redo the whole thing. I'm, I'm one of those people when all the conversation was on the police in 2020. As an educator at the time, I understood the importance of that. But I wanted people to understand that these are just branches from the same tree. Like you'll see policing, you'll see school, you'll see healthcare, and, and as somebody that was in those trenches, like teachers get away with killing dreams day in and day out around this country. But because it won't be a headline, it, it won't be you know a viral video unless there's some like actual violence in the class. We don't look at it that way. Like the whole system is violent. The way that they are teaching it, and they got our kids thinking that. Like they're slow, like they're remedial. That they, they got them thinking that because of they because they we talk a certain way that we have an attitude or that is something wrong with us because we can't sit still. Who's gonna learn by sitting? Who you can't learn sitting still? <laughs> Yo, <laughs> like we, it's so basic. Like kids, you can't even learn. You can't learn how to walk by reading a book. Nope. <laughs> you and, know what and, I'm and, you, and you speaking the truth on that. And again, like. You know, I used to work in a system where kids were were policed, right? And I was a part of that system. And it's sick sometimes, right? Because you think, and it's a lot of things are so interconnected, right? So if you're brought up in a house where discipline is a thing, and we know that, right? In Black culture, right? Discipline. And a lot of times, you know, we connect that even to, to slavery. But how we discipline kids, how we're supposed to be, how kids are supposed to be seen and not heard, how you're supposed to respect authority, how you're supposed to respect your parents, right? So you get into the school. And you, you're taught these notions, right? So the thing that happens is like, oh, get to school. Like these kids need to be quiet. They need to be sit down. They need to listen. You know better than that. You're supposed to respect adults. What you don't see, again, especially if you're growing up in all black society, is what has changed is the color of those adults, the intentions of those adults, the thought process of those adults, and what they think of you in a larger worldview. So, I mean, my goal is not to teach you to be out here disrespecting white people. Like that's, that's not the goal. But my goal is to have you challenge and think like, why do I have to be police? 
why do you really want me to be quiet right now? And how reflective are you on yourself or this lesson that you gave me to try to figure out why we are keep talking? Why do we keep interrupting? Why is it just, I don't want to learn? No, maybe you can't teach. How about that? Right? So a number of those things are interconnected. We, we have to really, too, like, our edu- I don't think our educators truly understand. You know, like, you would, you would get the question oftentimes as a teacher, what do I need this for? I think math teachers probably get that more than anybody, though. But it's like, why, why do I need to know? Like, and or, or kids be like, oh, this is boring. Class school is boring. When I got towards the end of my career, I, I truly understood what kids meant when they said that, though. Like, and, and it's not the fact that some things need to be born. Some things are tedious. But at that age of 15, 16, 17, they were trying to communicate a higher order uh critique that they probably did not fully understand. And I think what they were saying is like, this ain't going to help me when I leave, though. Um, um, but or, or if it is, can you like tell me explicitly? And, and mine was a little bit more concrete because I would always make present day connections. I would show them the connection between, you know, uh, you know, we talk about the Bill of Rights. I would connect that to restrictions we have now or the freedoms you do have. I, w- I would connect like what happened 9-11 to the Fourth Amendment and how that's reduced. I would connect, you know, anti-literacy laws and, you know, the, um, the, the, the book bans and things we see going on now. But in some some content, it's not as explicit. Some of the content needs to be revitalized completely, but also to our kids need to see and know because in in the population I had, oftentimes they'd be first generation here. They would have businesses sometimes, family owned businesses. So they like, I already know what I'm going to be doing. So like, like, I'm going right right into the family business. I'm going going right into that business. Like, can you like, let me know what this is for. Otherwise I'm probably going to drop out. And the thing is too, like, like a lot of our kids at that age, when I was teaching high school, 14 to 18, some do know what they want to do and some don't. But the, 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 the issue with our education system is it's a one size fits all approach. We, we going to say the, the kid who likes to speak and read and write like me is going to do good in school because I can sit down and do that stuff. But the kid who can build a computer but isn't being taught in that manner or build a home ain't going to know it till he graduates, takes a couple of jobs he hates. And then at 25, 30, he figures out he wants to be a construction worker. <laughs> yes. And had this old rough behind relationship with the institution that he went to for 13 years. Exactly. And that's a shame. They're shaming that. And I'm. I'm sitting here listening to you talk and I'm going back to when I was like in high school and there's certain classes or certain things that I was just like, why are we doing like, what am I doing this for? The crazy part though is like, I wish somebody would have put it in a different perspective. So as I'm thinking about square footage, right? You learn all that. I was horrible, right? It just wasn't a good math student. But now here I am as a grown adult, like, damn, I should have paid yeah. attention because <laughs> then I would have understood like this, how much I'm paying for each square footage of a house that I'm buying. Right. Like connect those dots. And I'm just even thinking about somebody talking to me about buying a house. Right. Yeah. That's yeah, nothing yeah. to like way in my adulthood. Right. So aspirations of me even thinking a young girl from the projects like that I could attain and have a house. I, I used to think that you could only own a home, right? Because I'm from New York. I'm from the Bronx. But I used to think, oh, you can only own a home if you move down south. Because all my family wow, down yeah, south, yeah. they had houses. But I'm, you know, up north. I'm like, we just live in apartments. Yeah. Unless you're rich and white, I guess that's, that's who buys houses up north. But if you want a house, you got to go down south and get one. 
right. all of that. But I'm just thinking about the connections that could have been made for me in school yeah. to help me understand money, and, and, living. I mean, all of that. And who's going to teach us? That? Like if we ain't, if our parents are limited, then we have to be able to in some ways get that from school. And one of the tragedies I also think in education is, I mean, I love history, right? But was I really that equipped to teach it at 22? I don't know. <laughs> and I'm, and I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm just being real because having been out, I'm out, I've been out the class a year and a half now. If I went back, if I went back full time, I would be miles ahead of where I was because I've had lived experience outside of a teacher. I taught economics one year and I never even, I didn't, not to say you have to own a business, but it, it helps if you've, at least tried, you know what I'm saying? Because yes. I'm teaching economics, like as I'm still learning these things. And so I would be like reading straight from the book, like, all right, so supply the d- demand curve is when it's going, wait, hold on. Okay. Wait, what you, no, that's, oh, I said it wrong. I said it wrong. So you, I mean, you're opening up a can of worms of something like that. This is a whole nother episode that we have to bring you back down to going. And the reason why I say that, about teachers being masters in their content and how important that is and who actually gets the short end of the stick for that, right? And it's generally our young Black people who are in urban neighborhoods who get the short end of the stick where they're getting very young teachers, teachers who've been in programs that they've only been trained for two years to a year and a half. Some some of these jokers only been trained for uh, four to eight months and they're out in the classroom and our, our children are thinking that they're experts, Right. But they're not, they haven't mastered the content. They don't know. And again, that's when you like, whose fault is it, right? That this is happening. There's a large teacher shortage happening. Schools of education are nowhere near where they used to be. Um, and accountability is not on them, right? So, so I mean, this, if you go back in the archives of this podcast, we go over several episodes where we talk about all of this. Um, but what you're speaking about not being equipped at 22 is happens all across America that our people, our young people are not equipped to, they haven't been trained properly. They just haven't. And then you ask yourself, who, who's to blame for that? And then who gets the short end of the stick when it comes to that? So you make a great point. Even for, for history, the best teacher of that would probably be an elder or someone who has, you know, in our immediate community that has experienced many things. And then the young teacher would come with the ideas of, maybe the facilitation of it, the activities, you know, but again, like at that age, I mean, the best English teacher might be someone who wrote a book or who has reviewed books or has written things or plays or like, you know, I mean, but we equate skill with a degree. Mm -hmm. These, These Western notions, Western concepts, we would assume that somebody who has an MBA at 25 is more equipped to run a business than somebody who's worked there for 30 years with a high school diploma. Mm, and I don't believe mm, that's mm. true. <laughs> it's not true. You Again, you make another excellent point. But that's a good point about worldview, um, about experience and what lens um, that we're looking at the world under. If we were looking at the the, the world under African lens um, and an ancestral lens, we would know that the best person who has the most knowledge is the elder. But then the elders will have the respect of the young people and know that they're the people who can galvanize, be leaders and have people out front. They just need training and they need support. So that intergenerational space, that's an African worldview. That's definitely not a European 
worldview at all. But let's talk about some Black history. Again, this is just the time of the month where I think people find out stuff that they've never known. Uh, Or like, I didn't know that was true. I didn't know this was happening. What? Yeah, because you don't learn this in school. People aren't teaching it to us. And it's just not heavily talked about. You already named on the two hands the people that people always generally talk about when you talk about something Black, right? Like the same couple names come up. But I would love for you to talk about just some Black history facts that we should know and we don't. Like your top five. Like, I want people to be like, because <gasps> I know it's, it's, top, yeah, yeah. it's top thousands, right? I know, it's, it's I know. Thousands, yeah, like. yeah. But, that, but that's a good, I might have to make that a video. I might have to think about that. Um, yes. <laughs> I think, so I, I always have to start with the foundation of where we're from. And I think that's important just to kind of show our kids just, the totality of it, of it all. And I would say one of those facts would be saying it's something I learned recently just in terms of like an exact time frame would be that there there's evidence that we've been creating art um, since at least like 150,000 years ago in Northern Africa, Morocco. Um, and I, I want people to really understand 150,000 years ago, again, like I said earlier, compared to the last 500 years. If we added 500 years to 150,000, you have 150,500. Like that, that's like, wow, right? And then we don't begin to talk about ancient Kemet. We're talking like maybe 4,000, 3,000 BC. So think about like, so if we subtracted that, that would still be like 145,000, 147,000 years ago from that point. So there's so much that we still haven't uncovered about how we are here and what we created. I always second fact I always I would share I'm gonna group some of these together, but just the, the origin of you know medicine and, and how we had natural remedies in, in ancient Kemet through Imhotep, who was looked at as a polymath and he was an architect, physician, a philosopher. He wasn't a pharaoh, but he was revered. That's what to me might be my number one, just because of how our kids view themselves as mathematicians nowadays. They always, oh, I can't stand math. I'm not good at math. That's like when we say, oh, how blood pressure running my family. Like, is it? <laughs> it's not. It's dietary. It? It's dietary. Right. But <laughs> right. is it, or, or is it that you live in a food desert? <laughs> you know yes. what I'm saying? Where the, mm-hmm. where the groceries or the, the supermarkets have been taken away and replaced with fast food places, right? Yes. So, like, we, you can't, you we built those. They they trying to say aliens did it. They got all they 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 sending people to Mars, and they still can't conceptualize how this was done. Mm-hmm. So that's genius level. And again, remember <laughs> those, those folks migrated from um, Northeast Africa to West Africa, Southern Africa, and things of that nature. So I think that's number two. That's very important to understand. Um, I will say three. An, an, another important fact is I will say fifteen twenty six. That's when the Spanish attempted to enslave us in uh, what's now South Carolina and Georgia. And when we were forced there, we immediately fought back. I think that's an important starting point uh, versus the 1619, which is only a starting point because that's when the English colonies uh, attempted to enslave us. But those Africans, what some would say about 100 of them, as soon as they were forced there, they conspired uh, uh, and with the indigenous tribes. They burnt down the homes of these Spanish colonists and they ran away to live with the indigenous people there. I think that's an important starting point because it shows us that we've always resisted and we never accepted our faith. And most oftentimes you would see that we resisted the most when we would be in situations where we had that view of what Africa was like. 
Because if you take me and force me to a foreign land, and and it don't like if I ain't got Wi-Fi, you know what I'm saying? It's like, hold on, this ain't right with my Wi-Fi. If I if I ain't got a Whole Foods or if I ain't got a, a gym up the street, what you mean? Like I so you fight because you know that's not what life is like. But then those other generations where the kids were taken away, you know, and they, and, they, and that 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 African memory was attempted to be erased. That's when it becomes more difficult for people to say. That's why the education is so important to us because when we're reminded, some clicks. And for me, it's a spiritual thing because sometimes I remember some things and I'm like, yo, that when you really resonate with a story, you begin to feel like that was that was me. Like that was that was my people right there. That's what I would have did. So that's number three for me. Um, as we get to the present day, it's hard to like now I'm only in 1526. I got like 500 years to go. Right. So that's that's kind of tough. That's kind of tough right there. Um, you know, I, I'm going to probably throw in, let's say because I talked about her recently. I'm gonna throw in Queen Nanny of the Maroons, um, an, another you know rebellious figure. We're talking in the 1700s now. She was enslaved. Some say she was born in Ghana. Some say she was born in Jamaica. But I always say she's the Harriet before Harriet because what she, what she did was very similar. But she formed the Maroon community. A little more difficult in America to do that. But she was also known that like she was uh you know trained in the art of warfare. And again, I think like like just. Uh, because of how Western society is, it's often difficult for us to imagine or conceptualize a woman doing something so heroic. But like that was the norm. And it's not to say that we didn't have like uh, like explicit gender roles in some African societies. Every society was, you know, culture was di- slightly different, but it wasn't viewed as rigid as it is here. Um, some some reports say that she f- uh, freed like over a thousand enslaved black folks. And her method was a little bit different because I think she went around like burning some of these plantations. And even at one point in her life forced the British to sign a treaty, you know? So that like, when you hear about that, it's like, oh, it ain't just, it ain't just Harriet. It's this too. So if I'm counting, I think that's, that's four, right? Wow, see, it's hard to do five. But you, you was only in the 1700s. <laughs> I'm only, I, mean, I got 300 years to make up for. I'm going to throw in, this is, and, and, and this is real. This is like when somebody asks you to name your top five rappers, like, I, I know. I, I, what you, it depends on my mood, right? So how I'm, oh man. Okay, how I'm feeling now, because I probably had to do a whole different one for the whole like 1900s, but I got to throw in Ida B. Wells because I made her my, that was my first TikTok for a reason. Ida B. Wells is one of my heroes. From she Miss, wrote. Yeah, she wrote, yeah. From Mississippi, <laughs> went to Memphis, was teaching at 16, Two of her friends were lynched for having a grocery store next to a white man that was successful. This is in the 1890s. 1890s, y'all. I don't think like people got to understand what was at risk. And she spoke up. And she wasn't like just passing some notes or tweeting a few things. She was writing about it to expose it to the point where she had to flee and come to my hometown, Chicago. And she still didn't shut up, right? She like she spoke out so much. I mean, it wasn't just like Dr. King. It wasn't just people on the outside that didn't like what she was saying. We have folks within our community that said she needs to be quiet, especially as a black woman. I don't I don't think that we have like paid her her proper respects in Chicago. We do a little bit like they got they got a national monument. They've renamed some streets. Um, They got like the home as a historic landmark and stuff. But I think because of because what she did wasn't in the 1950s. We sometimes overlook her. But to me, there is no like there's no King X, Rosa Parks, 
uh, Ella Baker, Fannie Lou Hamer without her to Obama, anything you want to talk about in the present day. So that's that's not my definitive top five, but how I'm feeling now. Th- those are five things we should be looking up right now. <laughs> okay. I, guess I gave you some new content. All right. Yeah. Well, I, I can't believe I had 400 years to cover. I was on four already. <laughs> four and you was only in the 1700s. Listen, this is why I said, let me ask this brother that question. Let me ask him that question. Because I knew you were going to go outside of the normal, yeah. you know, who, who people chose. <laughs> but that's a good point, though. I like that you you chose Ida B. Wells because I think, you know, we talk about Ida B. Wells. We, we know about her. But I think the ways in which you feel like she should be lifted up and celebrated more it's an interesting concept because I'm like, well, why don't we? Why don't we talk about Ida B. Wells a lot more? It's I gotta I gotta dig into that. She was very rebellious. She would call, you know, you can tell when somebody's really doing it for people, and mm-hmm. nobody's perfect, but like she called out some folks. She called out people. I wish I'm like she's one of those people where I wish we at least had like a video or something of her, you know, this week. Cause I just knew she would give people that look. Cause she was about it. <laughs> she was about I it. Well was about, about it. For so, real. <laughs> I gotta look at why we don't celebrate and, and lift her up and her rebellious spirit up a little more. And I'm yeah. thinking like maybe because they couldn't whitewash her, right? Maybe she yeah. was too she was too raw. Okay, yeah. she was too rebellious. You know, um, you can't make that a friendly story, right? Okay? Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you can make that a Hollywood movie, right? So, right. And, 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 and I, don't, I don't think at that, you know, and, that, and that, I don't want to say there weren't, there wasn't a male counterpart because, of course, she was existing at the same time as W.E.B. Du Bois and people like that. But I think because how she did a lot of her work, she overshadowed a lot of the men. I, I don't, I don't know if we were as our, we, 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 we did have Harriet Tubman and stuff like that, but I feel like it was, it's more difficult to, to pigeonhole her and place her in what was going on. That's why I say like, if she had more, like if the media access was, was different during that time, if we had TVs, if we had, you know, movies and things like that, and we were able to kind of see her more. Um, th- and that's the thing that Dr. King and that movement benefited from. And they knew that we like TVs are ubiquitous now. Let's use it to our advantage, you know? Absolutely. Just like social media is that for us. Exactly, exactly. Right now, for sure. So I'm going to give you a little bit more time to drop a little bit more history on us. <laughs> so you don't have to feel like it was just squeezing Titty's little forehead. Years. Like, I can't do much. I think another big thing that I see around Black History Month time that's super interesting to me, but also really, really inspiring. Um, and I'm also trying to weave in and give some content to our educators listening that y'all can go back and talk about some of this stuff in the classroom. But I think one of the major things is inventions. And the reason why I'm, I'll be hyped about inventions because I think sometimes white people act like they created the world, right? So you just, <laughs> you wouldn't know and wouldn't understand um, some of the stuff that we as a people have invented, have contributed to what the world would be like without some of the stuff that we did. So I would love for you to talk about uh, what are some things that you think or that you know were invented by black people that we have no idea that we created? Oh, Yeah. So I, I kind of did a series about this and I'm doing some videos now about it as well. So it's kind of fresh on my mind. Number one, I already got one. Um, number one is Osborne Dorsey, black man well, black boy. He was 17 when he invented the doorknob in oh, 1878. Um, I know that's striking the core because I got a video out there that keeps doing numbers. And also to like, you got to think about that time. A lot of these inventors, you wouldn't like, there's no pictures, especially 1800s. 
And oftentimes, which is surprising to me, is that might be the only thing of public record for them, which lets you know that to be an inventor wasn't like, I'm going to go to school, I'm going to get this degree, I'm going to be an engineer, work for this company. No, it was like you are trying to solve everyday problems where you are. Mm. We don't even know a lot about this brother, except he was like eight months old when he got freed. Later in his life, he was a butcher. Um, He did not capitalize off of that. Matter of fact, when he invented it, it wasn't still used widespreadly. And at that point in time, people were using like leather straps and latches and stuff like that, which is like wild to even think about. But we're talking again over, you know, 120, 30 years ago. So I think that's one that we take for granted. It's the smallest thing. Um, I think there's a brother named Alfred Crail who invented the ice cream scoop. <laughs> you know, like something as small as that. Right. Um, sister named Sarah Boone, who uh, made an improvement on the ironing board so that it would converge, I think, in the, like at the top. So, you know how you put your shirt around it. Um, so, you know, because if it's just completely square, you can't really iron around the edges like you need to. She did that. Um, there is Alice H. Parker, who invented the like the, the heating furnace. We don't have any pictures. We don't have any any knowledge about her. Matter of fact, if you Google her, a white woman of the same name will pop up who was born like 10 years after she died, I think, Alice H. Parker. So you got to be real clear. It's, I think it's, it's Alice H. Parker. We talk about Marie Van Britten Brown, who invented the home security system with a video in the 60s in New York. And she did this because her husband used to work overnight a lot of crime going on in the neighborhood. So they say, let's create something that can make you feel safer. She works sometimes as a nurse too, coming home late. So she needed something to be able to see. So we don't have the ring app without her. Oh, wow. I can keep going. I mean, shoot, Shirley Jackson, <laughs> call her ID. I, I know we, we know what that was like before you pick up Listen, the phone. You, shout out to Sister Shirley, okay? <laughs> shout out to Sister Shirley for bringing peace in people's lives, okay? Real, like <laughs> Like scam, what they say, scam or spam, maybe or whatever scam. Yes. Oh yeah, I ain't picking that up. Matter of fact, if I don't know who it is, oh yeah, I'm gonna go ahead and leave a yeah, voicemail. Yes, <laughs> if it's important, you know what I'm saying. I love that though. I love how you also put this as like people just was trying to solve everyday problems. Yeah, everyday problems making mm-hmm. it happen. But again, all this stuff you name, no, would have never knew that these were inventions by black people. Yeah, it, it's, right. it's, it's like, I mean, Gerald Lawson, the video game cartridge, um, James West invented, he he improved the microphone. I think it was called the Electret microphone, which is a standard now for what, what you're using, what I'm using, and 90% of all microphones out in the market. Black men, you know, so mm. we're everywhere. With 13, 14%, right? But Yes, right. <laughs> but we doing it, right? We doing it. We doing that's big. Crazy. So that's big. Love that. Listen, pure content lessons out here for your educators listening, okay? This is great stuff for our young people. Great stuff for our young people. So another question, you as like a, I would consider you a young person, definitely still connected to the culture and the climate. And I think that a lot of times, we wonder where is the balance, right, between today's culture, today's climate, and our history, and like what responsibility do like people have to act or or not to act? Because you're connected to social justice, like you said, that you went viral because you were involved in a hate crime, yeah, right? Right. Yeah, fighting for justice in my situation. Yeah. And so you were able to take that, but a lot of times, some people don't feel like it's their responsibility, and I think a lot of times, young people are caught in between on what they're what they are supposed to do like 
Is it my business? Is it not? Should I care about color, racism, rights? Like, I don't think we can afford not to. But I also don't think that it's everyone's responsibility in our community to have it at the forefront, if that makes sense. Um, because I don't want us to think that we only exist to, to, to fight this, combat this. There are some people, like not everybody, again, wants to sit down, read books, study, right? There are some people who build physically, right? There are some people who do other things. I just, I think but we all have to have that consciousness to say that this can be used for the benefit of my people, right? But not everybody, not everybody needs to be out in the streets, right? <laughs> some people have to be behind the scenes. Some people are just finding out about Bayer Rustin, again, behind the scenes. Like it, it takes so much to make a team work. And I think that the reason why so many of our kids and young folks might not want to get engaged more or not get involved in these types of things is because, again, the imagination. We, and I say we, this country has shaped uh, activist work as being deadly. <laughs> like we look at it like, oh, shoot, Dr. King and Malcolm X and, you know, oh man, Fred Hampton. Oh my God. Like, you know, but we don't talk about the thousands of other people who have lived long lives, some of whom are still around. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Bobby C. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, are, yes, you hitting on that. That's yeah. Yes. So we, we, we only, we, in our, in this society, we love to celebrate people when they dead, you know, like, we, we, I mean, we think about like if Tupac was still around, would people uplift his greatness, right? Or would we say he's crazy? Would we say he's this? He's, you know, if, if Biggie, like same thing. So we, we, we can pause people in that point and then talk about the greatness. So I, I think we have to begin to like, and I've seen this happen more in our culture and the media, but we got to start giving more flowers out to people when they still here. And this is something I want to say too, is for some of my heart, because I think that we really have to begin to, analyze as a culture why we are okay with Colin Kaepernick still not having a job. <laughs> and, 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 I, and, I, and I'm not saying it because of the sport. I just want us to truly think about, because that's the greatest example we have on a, in a public space of, a, of, of what we could have done, but we literally dropped the ball. And, and, I, and, and I, don't, I don't know if we knew what everybody's role was, but I will say that the folks who had the biggest uh, opportunity to make an impact were the ones who played with him, right? So, like, so what I'm what I mean is, let's like, because you know, I know people be like, oh man, they gotta feed their family. I get that, I get that. That's why you do it together. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, Mizzou, their football team. I want to say, and I don't want to. I'm, I'm maybe 2017 could be off by a few years. They were dealing with some racist incidents on campus. The students were stepping up. You had a brother who uh, engaged in a hunger strike because the president of the school was not doing enough. Whole bunch of hate crimes happening around campus. A bunch of outrageous stuff was going on. The school didn't do anything until the football team said, OK, if y'all don't do nothing, we ain't playing the next game. We won't play. By that Saturday, the uh, president of the university stepped down because they were going to lose so much money. The Super Bowl just had its highest viewership ever, 100 and 20 something million households that ain't taking into account the bars, the fact that people got parties like dang near 90 percent of everybody probably saw it or saw some of it, whether that was Usher or otherwise. All I'm saying is and living color was able to make enough of a dent 
into the halftime proceedings they had back then with a live show that they were able to impact the NFL to make a live show the next year and have Michael Jackson perform. Not everybody in the NFL has to protest Kaepernick, but what if 10% did? What if 15% did? Like I think there were a few brothers like Eric Reed who stood up for him, but I, I but I, but I think it was have, like two people who two stood people, up for Colin Kaepernick. Two yes. people, and he was a good, a really good quarterback. He went to the Super Bowl. He was better than half of the league when he when he was assigned again. So I think we have to look at that because we have to say like, wait a second, like we're most of the league. We generate this money, and there's a brother who stood up for something that impacts. 100% of the black players in the league, even if you ain't as well-versed in the studies of it, it impacts you. And he said, yo, he didn't even say nothing. He just was like... Just didn't stand up. He didn't stand up. He didn't say nothing. He didn't wear a shirt. He didn't do this. They asked him, okay, I'll talk about it. I don't want black people to be killed by police. Oh, we my did, God. He, he, did wear some, <laughs> he did wear some socks one time. Well, he did. But... Later <laughs> in the season, he, he was like, man, I'm, I'm, he said, I'm with it. I'm with it. I'm, I don't care. I'm wearing it. I'm doing when they, it. When, when, they brought, when they brought the heat, then he's like, oh, yeah, I want to want to talk. Oh, he, he, Let me show y'all, he took it up show y'all what it is. Let me show y'all what it really is. Let me show y'all what I'm really kneeling and, for. And, how about and, that? And imagine how many of our brothers were probably fearful of him speaking up about that because it's one of them things where it's like we know it's a problem but it's like it's the same thing with cat williams and monique it's like y'all ain't supposed to say names like we know it's a problem but y'all speaking a little too much you're gonna mess up my money yes <laughs> so, there it is. I'm, so i'm saying all that to say not everybody because i truly believe that you can do what you want during the national anthem and you still might be against racism all that but this brother took a very public stance lost his job as a top quarterback and I feel like we was cool with that because we got a bag. So if we don't rectify that, he's alive. This brother's going to live a long life. And in 50 years, the NFL is going to invite him back and apologize and give him a plaque and have everybody wear number seven. And we're going to be like, great job, Cap, but you could have did something right now. Yeah, you could have did something right then. It's just like, again, when we think about the story of, you know, we talk about Martin Luther King, um, but... Martin Luther King was most hated when they was assassinated. They murdered Martin Luther King. Like, <laughs> and now he has a whole holiday and everybody hold right, hands. Everybody don't judge on the content. <laughs> right. like they hated Martin Luther King. They killed him. This country killed him. And what did they do that? Was it the same year or the following year? They got folks like Jerry Jones taking the knee. And, and we got brothers taking a knee with, with Jerry. With Jerry Jones. I, I still, I ain't got over it. You can tell I ain't got over this shit. I can tell that it's a sore, that it's a sore <laughs> subject for you. But rightfully so, it should be. And again, you bring up great points to, again, like, we need another hour to get on this subject. But you're right, the balance of that and what that is to people, because you will have people saying exactly what you're saying right now. I got to feed my family. I mean, that brother decided to do that on his own. There are different ways we could go about this. Why he got to kneel during the anthem? Why he got to be so public? You have all of that, that all that rhetoric and conversation that takes place when at the end of the day, what he did was completely harmless. He didn't bother anybody. He just said, I'm not standing for this racist anthem. I'm going to kneel. That's all he did. He didn't didn't say nothing. He didn't (laughs) release no statements. He wasn't making social media posts. Fuck the police. Like he He didn't do none of that. Just saying, and the, not, and the, not standing for this. And the knee was like that. That was an agreement he had with a veteran. With a veteran, <laughs> As, absolutely. So he did what he was supposed to do. Like I'm not trying to disrespect the flame. I'm not trying to disrespect people who are at war. So what should I do? Veteran said, "All right, brother, just kneel. I understand why you don't want to stand. Just kneel." 
So he did what he was supposed to do. I had a conversation with the veteran. They said, Neil, out of respect. And still. So, I mean, you bring up a really good debating conversation about balance and what that should be and what it should look like and how people who do have power opportunity to do something, how they should do it. But that's why we, as folks who ain't going to ever play professional sports or be on the Grammys, like we have to also be educated and committed too, because oftentimes we'll throw stones and be like, you know, why y'all ain't stepping up? Why y'all ain't doing nothing? When it's like the brother at your job, the sister at your job had an issue and you decided not to say something with her or whatever. You saw what happened. So we can't just be like, it's only their responsibility. We have to be educated because also too, we never know when we would be in that opportunity, in that situation. Absolutely. That's such a, that's such a great point. Like when I tell you, you just opened up a can of worms, this will be a whole nother show. And it probably is going to be a whole nother show. Part two, the balance of culture, climate and history in our community. And where does our responsibility lie in that? Right, Bean, write that down. Next show with Mr. Krim and Shayna. We out here. Right, right. Oh my God. I'm super excited that you came on today. This is such a dope conversation. Like I can't even believe we out of time right now. But before we go, I'll always give my guests the opportunity to thank a black teacher before we leave this platform. So I want to give you the spotlight to do that. Wow. And you could thank you could thank more yeah. than one. It don't it don't only got to yeah. be one. Yeah, well, you know, I, I can go on a tangent, so I'm gonna just keep it brief. I'm gonna <laughs> okay. um I, I normally shout out my college professor, but he's all in my book and I've shouted him out a lot. This time I'm going to take the time to, I'm going to shout out Mr. Chen and Mrs. Chen. Mrs. Chen was my library teacher in elementary school at the white school I went to. Just always knew she saw something in me and our just the rest of her black students. And she knew while she was there, she needed to look out for us. Even though I didn't have the words for it then, I felt it and I feel it now. And her son, Mr. Chen, Ended up working there as a PE teacher. And I keep in touch with him to this day. He's always showing me love, always shouting me out, always sending me words of encouragement. And that was, I mean, to, this brother was like 6'6". Six, six, you know, we used to just it, like be in awe of him. Because this dude, again, we see Jordan. We see Mr. Chen. Like, Mr. Chen, can you dunk? <laughs> Mr. Chen, can we? You know, we just thought the most amazing, just the kindest dude ever, all for his people. All for the community. So uh, shout out to Mr. and Mrs. Chen. Thank you for everything you've done for me. I love that. Dope. Mr. Krim, this has been an hour. Listen, all my folks out there, I also want to give you space to name your handles out here. Because if, you if you're not following Mr. Krim and you're listening to me, please go follow, like, share his videos. Use them inside your classrooms. Where can people find you? Yeah, I'm on uh, TikTok and Instagram primarily, mainly Instagram, though, I would say, at Mr. Krim 3. So that's at M-R-Krim, C-R-I-M 3. That's not two M's, just one M, Mr. Krim 3. Uh, you can also find me at my website, ErnestKrim.com. That's E-R, not E-A, E-R-N-E-S-T-C-R-I-M. I'm on all these social media streets, LinkedIn, too. You can find me on there. Even Twitter, I'll be kind of lurking in the shadows on there, too. <laughs> lurking. They stay lurking. Listen, <laughs> thank you so much for coming to see us today and really, really dropping some rich knowledge and history on us. Happy Black History Month to you. And shout out to Brightbeam, our partners, and uh, the Center for Black Educator Development for giving us the spotlight to host Building a Black Educator Pipeline. Please subscribe, like, share wherever you are. So all my co-conspirators, we'll see you next time. Peace, y'all.